Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. Today's episode is sponsored by the Sundance Now Doc Club and the Ring Video Doorbell. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I want to thank all of you listeners for the incredible amount of engagement that I've received over the last week. It's taken a little while to get here, but I feel like we're finally right smack dab in the middle of an active, crowdsourced investigation. I'm getting bombarded daily with different theories and ideas. Listeners have been helping with the requests that I've made. And regarding that, I've had probably two dozen different listeners work on the footprint that I requested a few weeks ago. I've gotten a lot of those images back, and I'll tell you that they are helpful, and I'll be discussing them soon in a future episode. But in today's episode, we're going to continue on with a follow-up analysis of the crime scene. I've discussed the analysis with Jim Clemente. I've had a ton of listener feedback. We're going to take a deeper look at the car and the towel. This time, we're going to look at the crime scene from the second crime scene investigator's point of view. I didn't mention this last week because I wanted everything to soak in before we moved on to this, but Jason Waller was not the only crime scene investigator in Elnora's trailer on that night. After we're done with the follow-up analysis of the crime scene, the car, and the towel, we're going to break down Edward Eight's known timeline. But for now, let's get right into the crime scene analysis. Like I mentioned last week, one of the things that I wanted to do with this case is to have Jim Clemente take a look at the crime scene and give his critique on my somewhat amateur crime scene analysis. Well, Jim and I were able to hook up on Sunday shortly after the episode aired. We weren't able to get together to do an interview on the podcast. We're both incredibly busy right now. As a matter of fact, the conversation that we had, I was sitting in the bleachers at my son's Little League game and Jim was driving down the road. So as I awkwardly sat in the bleachers with a bunch of other parents, trying not to sound too conspicuous while I talk about murder and rape and sodomy and things of that nature, I took notes as Jim gave me his analysis. The first thing that Jim told me was that most of the analysis was pretty spot on. After hearing the evidence, he agrees that we're most likely looking for a left-handed killer. All of the evidence seems to point in that direction. And speaking of the left-handed killer, I need to make a correction. 
At the end of last week's episode, I said that the jury never got to hear that part in the interview where Huckel asked Edward Aids if he was right or left-handed. Well, this week, as I'm going through and re-fact-checking everything and rereading all these documents, I discovered that something that I hadn't heard when I listened to Edward Aids' first interview was clearly written in the transcripts. That tape, that second tape that was said it contained the same thing that was on the first, I found out is actually the second half of that first interview. So it appears that the jury did hear the entire first interview. And when you read the transcripts, which are up on the website under episode 214, about halfway through the interview, after they flip the tape, is where Detective Huckel asks Ed if he's right or left-handed. And Edward says that he's right-handed. Now, the jury did hear this tape. It is almost impossible to hear, as you caught from that little clip that I played last week. But they were also given the transcripts. However, they were not allowed to take the transcripts back into the deliberation room. They were only allowed to use them for reference while the tape was playing. But in any case... There was no discussion anywhere in the trial about whether the killer was right or left-handed, but they did play that part of the tape where Ed said that he was right-handed. There was just no other evidence presented to let the jury know why or if that was significant. But getting back to Jim, he told me that he believes the killer could not have been much larger than Elnora. The way he put it and what I wrote down as he was saying it, that a six-foot-six person could control her and kill her with just one hand pretty easily. So Jim agrees that the struggle that went on and all of the beatings to her body and the amount of space that the struggle took throughout the trailer is inconsistent with someone who is so much larger than her as Edward Ates was. Jim also agrees that the murder was most likely committed by someone with a personal relationship with Elnora. All of the evidence in the crime scene certainly does indicate that. However, he did tell me that he believes that the two-person theory kind of overcomplicates the crime scene. He didn't say that it's not possible. But he said that things like the towel being hung up on the door and maybe coming from one bathroom and the hammer and nails from another, that could possibly indicate that there were two people there. But he said that could also be indicative of an inexperienced, disorganized killer who's basically just freaking out after it happened and is scrambling all over the house trying to figure out what to do. And he told me that I should correct the terminology I used when I was discussing that. Like I said last week, my personal theory is that there were probably two people in that trailer when the murder occurred and during the cover-up afterwards. He said in that instance, I shouldn't use the term theory, but rather an investigative hypothesis. And it's kind of splitting hairs, but I understand where Jim's coming from here, where there are certain things where the evidence directly indicates that something happened. For example, the wounds on Elnora, her path of travel, the blood spatter, that's direct evidence to indicate that she was killed by someone who was left-handed from behind her. Whereas piecing together a practical scenario in my mind based on a conglomeration of all the evidence, that's a hypothesis. So I want to make that clear and relay that that's what Jim had to say about that. And regarding the two-person killer theory, well, I do agree that that could be because you have a frantic, disorganized killer. But then I'll also point out that my reason for believing that there were two people in that trailer that night that committed that murder has to do with a lot more than just the towel situation. Namely, for me, it, this has to do with the struggle. And again, this is just a hypothesis. But when I see that there was a bad struggle in that bathroom, and I see that Elnora was choked to the point where she was hemorrhaging in the eyes, she would have been near unconsciousness, that she was able to get away just seems impossible to me. There's no ligature marks on her neck. There's nothing indicating that she was squeezed with hands or with a rope or a cord or a phone cord or anything like that. It looks to me like someone had her around the throat with their arm, like in the crook of their elbow. 
That's a tight grip, and that's hard even for a grown man to get away from, especially once you've been in that grip long enough that you're nearing passing out. So the reason for my hypothesis has to do with how the window was covered up with the towel, but I also couple that with the fact that she was able to escape the killer's grasps in that bedroom, and then escape their grasp again near the door where the curtain was ripped off and the lamp was knocked over. Also, there is more information regarding some of the suspects that supports the hypothesis, but we'll get into that in another episode. Like I said, I've gotten a lot of feedback from listeners and a lot of good information. I've had a few listeners that suggested that Elnora did not escape the strangulation, but rather was actually rendered unconscious and then later awoke and made a break for the door. This is something that I hadn't considered before and I'm thinking about now that could contradict the idea of two people being there. I suppose it is possible that the killer was choking Elnora, she passed out, the killer thought that she was dead once she fell to the ground, started walking through the crime scene to cover things up. Elnora comes to, she makes a break for the door, he then attacks her at the door, she gets away again, and then ends up slitting her throat. Another common question that I've had from a lot of listeners is where did the knife come from? And the answer to that is we don't know. The murder weapon was never recovered. A few knives from Elnora's kitchen were tested and there was no blood residue on them. There was a knife found out on the road that was tested, there was no blood residue on that. Ed's house and bedroom were searched for the murder weapon. Nothing was found there either. But the question becomes, how does strangulation and beating turn into her throat being slit? And the best guess that I could come up with is that the murderer had a pocket knife in their pocket. There's no evidence to support this. Just basically looking at the crime scene and how things laid out, it looks to me as though this was a constant struggle that started in the bedroom and worked its way up to the point where her body was found. And all I could think of is at that point, once the killer got a hold of her again, they reached into their pocket, pulled out their pocket knife, and slit her throat. And of course, another possibility would be that the way that Elnora escaped the grasp of the killer back in the bedroom is that she had access to a knife, and that she was able to get her hands on it and cut the killer. That caused them to let go, and they caught up with her in the living room, got the knife out of her hands, and slit her throat with her own knife. But again, that's just another possibility. I also got an email from listener Laura Lester from Canada. Now, Lester was the second listener to send me a similar email. I couldn't find the old email I got a few weeks ago from someone else saying the same thing. But Lester wrote me to tell me that she's just over five foot tall and that she does not find it odd at all that Elnora's seat was pushed all the way back. She said that she's so short that she does pull her seat all the way forward when she drives, but she always pushes the seat all the way back when she gets in and out of the car. She said it's very awkward to get in and out of that cramped space with the seat pushed all the way up. She told me that her sister is also very short and does the same thing. Now, me being six foot one, I couldn't tell you one way or the other. But that's three people, Lester, another email, and Lester's sister, who have all told me that they are very short in stature, they drive with their seat pulled all the way up, and that they push it all the way back before they get out. I've also had several listeners email in and try to come up with an idea of how the semen stain got on the comforter in the bedroom. It's been suggested that maybe the semen got on the comforter because Elnora was performing oral sex on the killer. I'm not exactly sure what to think about this. I mean, the rape kit was done, her mouth was swabbed, and there was no sign of spermatozoa found in her mouth as part of the rape kit. But I don't know how accurate that is. I don't know how much residue is left behind, if any. Uh, also, when I mentioned this to Jim, he asked me if they had swabbed for any epithelial cells that might have been left in the mouth, and I don't have the answer to that. There was nothing discussed about that at trial, 
I did, however, order the full autopsy report, which I should have here in a few days. For some reason, the autopsy report was not introduced as evidence at trial. Therefore, it wasn't in the exhibit box. So I had to order the full copy because I was only able to hear what was testified to at the trial by the ME. But regarding the semen stain, let's next discuss the testimony of the second crime scene investigator, Detective Melody McKay. McKay was a sexual assault expert. Due to the fact that Elnora was found nude and it was believed that she had been sodomized, McKay was called in to help with the investigation. After a quick break for the ads, we'll get into the testimony of Melody McKay. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Detective Melody McKay worked alongside of Jason Waller during the crime scene investigation. For the most part, she followed along with Jason Waller, and she pretty much confirmed most of what Waller had said. Her testimony did, however, reflect one major difference. She testified that when using a blacklight, that there were indications of semen on Elnora's buttocks. This is the first I had heard about this. She said that they used a blacklight, and as she put it, there was a substance on her buttocks that reacted as though it was semen. Unfortunately, this wasn't mentioned in the forensic lab technician's testimony or in Waller's. She doesn't even mention if a swab was taken of the substance. It's just briefly mentioned, and then she moves on. And this is insane to me. I'm sure that you can feel my frustration. If there was semen found on her nude, dead body, that is physical evidence that could be sent for a DNA test and absolutely show us who was there with her that night. We're not talking about an old stain on a mattress that could have been there for weeks before. This is actually on her body, her nude body, as it's lying there dead, and absolutely no mention of it, no mention of any kind of testing whatsoever. But as frustrating as that was, the really interesting part of her testimony is that in an attempt to back up Waller's findings, she actually exposed his lies. As a quick review, I want to make clear the timeline of Jason Waller's investigation into this case. 
Remember, the murder occurred on a Thursday night. The body was found on Friday night. Jason Waller had began his vacation when he got off work on Friday evening. He came back in that night to investigate this crime scene. He arrived on the scene about 9 p.m. and cleared the scene at 7 a.m. on Saturday morning. This is when the crime scene was released back to the family. Then on Saturday morning, there was a meeting at the police station with Jason Waller, Dale Huckel, Melody McKay, and, you guessed it, David Dobbs. So at this point, we're about 12 hours into this investigation, and already the prosecutor, David Dobbs, is coming in on a Saturday to meet with the detectives working the case. I'm not sure of the exact times, but three things happened on that Saturday. There was this meeting with the detectives and Dobbs, and I personally believe that this is where things went south. As I'm reading through all these documents, I'm looking at transcripts of interviews, trial testimony, I personally think that Detective Huckel was a decent guy, and I think he was a decent cop, at least at his core. We've all heard tapes from the Kenny Snow case where Jason Waller is convincing both Patricia Mims and Kenny Snow not to get a lawyer. You know, they're telling them they're going to have to stay in jail all weekend. If they have to wait for a lawyer, maybe there's no lawyer available. Dale Huckel doesn't do any of that. When he was interviewing Edward Ates, he tells him right away he doesn't want a lawyer. He tells him he can have a lawyer if he wants one. He's not under arrest. He can go home anytime. He's welcome to have a lawyer. He just basically, the impression I get on a personal level, is that Huckel at least started this investigation out on the up and up. But of course, it doesn't take long for Smith County Justice to set in. The second thing that happened on this day, or maybe not the second, again, I'm not sure of the order of these things, is that at least the detectives, and I'm not sure if Dobbs went with them, returned to the crime scene. This we know did happen at about noon. And the third thing that happened on that day is that Ed's girlfriend, Monica Bush, came to the station to interview with Detective Huckel. And again, I don't know the exact time of that. I don't know who else was there. I don't know if it was when Dobbs was there, before or after. This interview was taped. However, it was not presented at trial. And I've been trying for over a month now to get the police file from the Smith County Sheriff's Department. And they've been kind of giving me the runaround. I was told two weeks ago that they were working on it and I'd have it by Wednesday. I got a call back later that week that said they didn't have anything on it. And they thought it must have been a Tyler PD case. I gave them the case number, all the detectives who worked it, and sent them some more information, and I haven't heard anything since. But one way or another, I am going to get a hold of the tape of Monica Bush being interviewed. But in any case, those were the three things that happened on Saturday. We had the meeting with the detectives and Dobbs. We had a return to the crime scene. We had an interview with Monica Bush. When the Smith County Justice League returned to the scene on Saturday, the family was already there removing things from the trailer. Anything that was found from this point forward would be contaminated evidence. Nothing could be used. Once they cleared that crime scene at 7 o'clock that morning and the family came in, they were done. Or at least they should have been. Now the next day, on Sunday, Jason Waller left to go out of town on his vacation. He was gone for about three weeks. At this point, the lead investigator was Detective Dale Huckel. Now you remember back from last week's episode that Jason Waller testified that on the Friday night when he was investigating the crime scene, he discovered the handprint on the towel. He said that Huckel held his hand up to the towel, and the print was larger than his. Huckel confirms this at trial, even though none of this was ever written into a report. Melody McKay also confirms this happened at trial, but again, it's not mentioned in her report, which, as an aside, wasn't written until January of 94, six months later. Now, there are a few problems with this towel story. First of all, the only two people inside the crime scene on Friday night were Waller and McKay. Huckel was outside. 
then left with Ed and his mother to go back to the station for the interview. He couldn't have witnessed this happening and held his hand up to the towel with Waller on Friday night. He wasn't there. Now, Melody McKay was there. She was right there with Waller. On direct, she testified that all this happened on Friday night, or at least alludes to that. But on cross, things start to fall apart. First of all, she says that they could see the handprint when they were there midday and the sun was shining through the towel. Well, the sun wasn't shining through anything between 9 p.m. and 7 a.m. That was the only time Waller was there investigating before the scene was turned back over to the family. Now, the sun was shining through the window on Saturday afternoon. Maybe that's when it actually happened. But on Saturday afternoon, that print could have been from anyone. The family was already moving things around in the trailer when they got there. But as Cross goes on, things get even worse. McKay let slip that the handprint was actually discovered on the 29th, the following Thursday. So this is a week after the murder. And this is when they had returned to the scene with divers to check the pond behind the house for the murder weapon. Jason Waller wasn't even in town on the 29th. And he most certainly was not out at that crime scene. When Melody McKay says they saw the sun shining through the towel and noticed the handprint. And now we can see why Jason Waller didn't document this in his report. It's because it didn't happen. Speaking of the 29th, that again is the Thursday a week after the crime occurred, there is something else significant about McKay's testimony. Now remember back to last week, Jason Waller testified that he personally processed the car. He said that he found the seat was pushed all the way back and the radio was tuned to a rap music station. Again, none of this is in his report, but that's what he testified to at trial. Here's the problem. The keys to Elnora's car were never recovered. McKay testified that on the 29th, when they returned with the dive team, that one of the deputies hot-wired the car. She said that since they had no keys, that was the only way they could turn it on. This is when she, quote, mentally noted that the radio was tuned to a rap music station. And again, I say mentally noted because this isn't included in her report either. Now, as another aside, it comes out in Cross that she actually has no idea what's played on that station. In direct examination, she clearly said that it was a rap music station. But the fact is that it's not a rap station. It's a black station. And they do indeed play gospel music along with rap. But the bigger picture here is this. Jason Waller left town on the 25th. The car wasn't hot-wired until the 29th. There is no way that he could have known what station the radio was tuned to when he processed the car. He couldn't turn it on. Oh, and one more thing about the car at the scene. Along with his mental, non-documented notes about the towel and the radio station, Waller also claimed that the seat was pushed all the way back that night. Believe what you will, but I'm going to go ahead and call bullshit. Waller had just found a four-foot-four woman dead in the trailer. He says that he noticed the seat to the car was pushed all the way back, but he claims that he didn't document or photograph this because he didn't know that the suspect was so tall. Well, given Miss Griffin's height, well, or lack thereof, it would have been obvious that any suspect would have been taller than her. There's just no way that he doesn't document the seat location when he notices that it's that far back. But I believe that there's an explanation as to why he didn't. If you go to the website and look at the photos from episode 214, you'll see a Polaroid photo of Elnora's car. This is the photo that was taken to Ed's girlfriend's apartment complex on the 27th, which we'll discuss in a moment. You can see that there's a date written on the photo. It says July 26th. 
In this photo, the car had already been moved away from the place that it sat on Friday night when Waller supposedly processed it. Melody McKay and the other deputy hotwired the car and processed it on the 29th. This photo proves by the time they looked in that car, someone had been in it and it had already been moved. Therefore, even if the seat was pushed back at that time, it could have been moved by any member of Elnora's family. I'll just recap that just in case it wasn't clear. On the night Elnora's body was found, Friday the 23rd, the car was pushed up way behind the trailer right next to the trailer. On the 26th, there's a photo taken of the car and it had been pushed back about 20 or 30 feet. On the 29th, Melody McKay processes the car. That's when she hotwires it, figures out what radio stations it's on, and notes that the seat had been pushed back. But we know the car had been moved since the night of the murder. All of the evidence regarding the towel and the car never should have been allowed at trial. This misrepresented evidence is nothing short of a willful and purposeful attempt to fabricate a case against Edward Eights and to manipulate the jury into believing that all signs pointed towards him. You may be asking yourself, why would they go through all the trouble of trying so hard to put Ed in that car? And the answer is simple. They had no case. They had someone who said she thinks Ed was there when she called Elnora, and a discrepancy in Ed's story about how he got to his girlfriend's house that night. Literally nothing else at that crime scene points to Ed. Nothing. Not a fingerprint, not a hair, not a drop of blood, not a drop of semen. Nothing. This is a simple case of the detectives having blinders on. The first indication of a possible suspect was Kubia's statement about the phone call. Then Ed lies about how he got to Monica's house, and they zeroed in and never looked anywhere else. And the fact that David Dobbs inserted himself into this investigation less than 24 hours into the case certainly didn't help. And that leads us into a closer look at how the car played into the state's narrative at trial. The story that the jury heard was that Ed Eights brutally murdered Elnora Griffin. Then he took her car and drove to his girlfriend's apartment. The state claims that this was his attempt to create an alibi. Now we'll get to Monica's side of the story in just a minute. But first let's look at how they put Elnora's car at Monica's apartment. There were two people who testified at trial that they saw Elnora's car at the apartment complex that night. A man named Jesse Nelson and his stepson at the time, Cedric Walker. The short story is that Nelson remembers seeing Elnora's car parked in a strange place beyond a dumpster facing the woods on the night of the murder. He remembers the car because it was out of place. He says that no one ever parks there and he had never seen that car before. It was pretty devastating testimony. But then we dig a little deeper. It turns out that Mr. Nelson was on probation at the time. On the 27th of July, so five days after the murder, Jesse was paid a visit by some acquaintances. Detective Dale Huckel, Deputy Danny Martin, and once again, you guessed it, David Dobbs. Let me first say how wildly inappropriate it is for the prosecutor to be actively going out to interview witnesses four days into this investigation. No charges have been filed yet. The case hasn't even been sent to the DA's office yet. This is still just an initial investigation. But Nelson testifies that he knows the guys that came to see him. He says that he knows Martin from his time in jail. And he knows Dobbs because he is the one who prosecuted him for burglary earlier that year. So a couple of old buddies come out to see him. He says they showed him one picture of Elnora's car. And he remembers immediately. He tells them what a memorable event it was that he had seen that car in the parking lot almost a week prior. If you remember when Ed interviewed on the show, he talked about this guy. He described him as... 
I'll just say less than reliable at trial. Remember, he said that the people in the courtroom were laughing at him. I cannot do this man's testimony justice. You need to go onto the website and read it for yourself. It's the testimony of Jesse Nelson. All I'll say is that, in my opinion, he's full of shit. And I think that there was a reason that Dobbs was out there that day. Nothing like a little pressure to get someone to say whatever you need them to say. Nelson's on probation, and Dobbs is the one who put him there. And here comes David Dobbs knocking on his door, asking for a favor. But after Nelson's ridiculous testimony, his former stepson testified. Cedric Walker was 16 or 17 at the time of the murder. He says that he remembers the cops and Dobbs coming out, and he remembers telling them that he had seen the white car also. But his testimony was quite different from Nelson's. He said that he remembered a car like that being at the apartment complex, but it was during daylight hours, and he had seen it there before. So Jesse Nelson's testimony is that he'd only ever seen the car that one occasion, it was late that night, and it was parked way out by the woods. But then his stepson says he remembers seeing a white car like that before, but it wasn't at night, it was during daylight hours, and he had definitely seen it there on another occasion as well. So who's lying? So now that we have a better idea of the state's narrative, let's see how it lines up with Ed's actual timeline. Ed's timeline can be a little complicated. We can kind of break them down into two different areas. We have undisputed elements of his timeline. These are things that are corroborated and no one has questioned. And then we have the disputed elements of his timeline. These are kind of gray areas. So I'll start with the undisputed elements. On the day Elnora Griffin was murdered, Ed was working with his uncle out on a ranch. After he was done at the ranch, he was cutting some people's hair. He came home around 4 or 5. Somewhere between 5.30 and 6.30, Elnora Griffin had gotten off work and stopped into Edward Eight's house. She had just stopped by to chat and talked to Ed's mom about a birthday gift that she had given her, and Ed had talked to her briefly about the lawn work. Ed mowed Elnora's yard once a week for $10, and he told her that he'd be by the next day on Friday to do some weed eating. Somewhere between 6 and 6.30, Elnora left and went home to go have dinner. Then between 8.30 and 9.30 that evening, Ed had walked down to talk to Johnny Pryor. You remember this is Elnora's cousin. She lived right between Ed and Elnora. She had asked Edward to paint her house. So that evening between 8.30 and 9.30, Ed went down to Johnny's house. They walked around and looked, and they agreed on a price for Ed to paint her house. She agreed to pay him $300 to do the work. About 9.30, Ed left and went back to the house. It was almost time for Johnny to go to work. So Ed said he'd be back the next morning and they can talk about colors. When Ed got back up to the house, he stood outside with his brother Kelvin for a few minutes. It was dark by this point, and this is where things start to get a little fuzzy. Both Ed and Kelvin say that Ed had told Kelvin that he was going to go visit his girlfriend Monica. Kelvin went inside and locked the door. Mom and Grandma had already gone to bed for the night. Now we'll get back in a minute to the confusing part of this, and we'll just talk about the things that we know. We know and this is corroborated by Ed, his girlfriend Monica, and her mother Marcia, that at least from 11.20 till midnight, Edward was at Monica's apartment. She lived 15 to 20 minutes away, and there's some dispute about this at trial. Detective Hugel says that he made the drive and the longest it ever took him was 13 minutes. Monica says the drive takes 25 to 30 minutes. Ed says it takes about 20 minutes. I drove it while I was out there, and it took me between 15 and 20. The total trip is about 12 or 13 miles, but you have a lot of stoplights between one place and the other. But I guess the time that I'm comfortable with is to say about 15 minutes, which would mean that from what we know of, 
the latest that Ed could have left his house to get to Monica's if he didn't get there until 1120 at night would have been 11 or 1105. We know that around 1 o'clock in the morning, Ed called Monica and they talked on the phone for about 30 minutes from home. So again, we know he was home between 5.30 and 6. That's when Elnora stopped by. We know between 8.30 and 9, he spoke with Johnny Pryor about painting her house. We know that after dark, around 9.30, that he was up at his house with his brother. And we know that by 11.20, he was at his girlfriend's house until midnight. And then at 1 in the morning, he was on the phone to Monica for about a half an hour. So the critical time frame that we're missing here is that we don't know where Ed was between 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. So there's about an hour and a half there of unaccounted for time. Now, Ed says to this day, and this is also what he said back in 93, that by 10 o'clock, he was at Monica's house. He said that around 9 or 9.30, he left and went to Monica's. Now, we know there's the discrepancy in how he got there. He told the police that Monica had picked him up, and he told Monica that he got a ride there with a friend. So his method of transportation was in question, but he's consistently stated that between 9 and 9.30 is when he left, right after that conversation with his brother to go to Monica's house. And we also know, and I forgot to mention this earlier, that Ed was home and had a phone conversation with Monica at 7.15. Both he and she say it was from 7.15 to 7.30. She knows she got off the phone at 7.30 because that's when her show Martin came on, and she always watched that with her mother. So what happened during that critical time frame of between 9.30 at night and 11 o'clock at night? Well, there's a couple of different versions of this story. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, the first indication that the police had was Kubia Jackson's statement on the night of the murder that she had called Elnora between 9.45 and 10.30 p.m. and Elnora had told her, I'm sitting here talking to Edward. That's the reason they looked at Edward in the first place. Now, this is definitely in the disputed category. Edward has always and still does maintain that he was never in Elnora's trailer that night, that he never saw her or talked to her after she left his house at 6.30. Now, we have Kubia's statement that directly contradicts that, but there's some problems with Kubia's statement, and I'm still waiting for a document to see how this kind of went down. When you read the trial transcripts, Kubia says that Elnora told her, I'm sitting here talking to Edward, Kubia asked Edward who, 
Elnora responded, Edward Lewis, Mrs. Dew's grandson. Now that's pretty clear. That's very difficult to misinterpret. But that's not what her statement says the night she was interviewed. I don't have the document that shows her actual statement. It wasn't in the exhibit file. And it wasn't introduced as evidence in trial. And every time the defense tried to bring it up, Dobbs kept objecting, saying that was hearsay, that she couldn't read off of a report. But reading between the lines of the trial transcripts, and reading through Edward Eight's interview transcripts, you see that what Kubi had actually told the police that night was that Elnora told her, I'm sitting here talking to Edward Eights. At least that's what was documented. She didn't say Edward Lewis. She didn't say Mrs. Dew's grandson. It just said that she was talking to Edward Eights. Now, this statement was giving to Shirley Mallard, who was Shirley Long at the time of trial, and her testimony would be up on the website. But these statements were all taken about the same time. Edward Eights had been given a statement. Kelvin Eights had given a statement. Kubia, Mrs. Dews. And it sounds like Deputy Mallard wrote down that Kubia told her that Elnora said she was sitting there talking to Ed Eights. Now, one immediate problem we have with this is that, now this is according to Edward, so take it or leave it, Elnora didn't know his last name. He said there's no way she would have said, I'm sitting here talking to Ed Eights, or Edward Lewis for that matter. He said she only knew him as Edward. He didn't know her that well. He'd only been living there for about three months before this happened. His grandmother's last name was Dews, and both Johnny Pryor and Elnora knew her as Mrs. Dews, and Ed's mother's last name is Jackson. As he told me on the phone today, she knew his grandmother is Mrs. Dews, and his mother is Margie Jackson. He doesn't think there's any way that she had any idea that his last name wasn't Jackson. Certainly not that it was Eights. And he says he doesn't know how in the hell she could possibly have known what his middle name was. But still, we have this statement. The police go into this investigation when they pull him in for an interview at about 11 o'clock on that Friday night, just two hours after the body was found. And they have a statement that he was sitting there talking to Elnora at 10.30. While he's interviewing with them, he tells them that he was at Monica Bush's house that night. Now, he lies about how he got there, and they discover this because during the course of that interview, Deputy Steve Cheney steps out and calls Monica to confirm Ed's story. Now, at this point, we're talking about 24 hours ago. This was just the night before. When Deputy Cheney spoke with Monica Bush on the phone, she told him that Ed was at her house from 10 to 11. Now, this was a problem for the police. The only lead they had in this case, and of course the investigation's only two hours old at this point, but the only lead they have is this statement that Elnora told Kubia on the phone between 9.45 and 10.30 that she was sitting there talking to Ed. But then Ed says, by 10 o'clock, he was at his girlfriend's house. And then they call his girlfriend, and she confirms that at 10 o'clock, he was at her house. She says from 10 to 11. Later, she says, oh, wait, he didn't leave until midnight because she remembers looking at the clock when he left. But this is a problem. They're back to starting from scratch. Kubia had to have been mistaken when she thought Elnora said that she was sitting there talking to Edward between 9.45 and 10.30 because he couldn't have been there because he was at Monica's house. But given the fact that Ed had lied about how he got to Monica's house, they kept pursuing their only lead. The next day, that Saturday morning, Monica went into the police station and had a taped interview with Detective Dale Huckel. Now again, at trial, the defense attempted to bring this interview in, but again, Dobbs and Shoemaker, he was the other prosecutor, kept objecting that it was hearsay. But again, when you read the testimony, and you can read between the lines, it's obvious that on that Saturday morning, once again, Monica told Detective Huckel that Ed was there at 10 o'clock. 
So she gives her first statement 24 hours after the fact and says that Ed was there at 10 o'clock. The next day, she gives another statement and still says that he was there at 10 o'clock. You would think this would be case closed. We know he was with Johnny Pryor until 9.30, and his brother says that he said he was going to Monica's house at 9.30, and he and Monica say that he was at Monica's house at 10 o'clock. There's no way that he could have committed this murder. It's not possible. And there's certainly no way that he could have been sitting there talking to Elnora at 10.30. So how did he possibly get convicted? Well, the answer to that is, five years later at trial, Monica's testimony had completely changed. Now, at the first trial in 1994, she was still testifying that he was there at 10 o'clock. But at the second trial in 1998, she then testified that he didn't get there until about 11.20 or 11.30. In the second trial, her mother was also brought in to testify, who also testified that he didn't get there until 11.20. Now, of course, the defense tried like hell to impeach her by explaining what she had said previously, and Dobbs tried to explain that away by pointing out that she was in those first couple of days trying to stick up for Ed and trying to help him out. Now, mind you, when she gave those first statements, she had no idea what was going on. But the detectives did tell her something interesting. Remember way back at the beginning of this podcast, like episode maybe two, we talked about the ability to manipulate people's memories. And this is absolutely a case of witness manipulation. During this line of questioning at trial, Monica says that she must have said the wrong time at first because she was frustrated because when Deputy Cheney called her, before he even asked her what time Ed was there, he was telling her that Ed was a murderer and he had done all these horrible things before he even asked her when he got there. Now, somehow this got blown by at trial, but do you realize how messed up that is? Again, this investigation is two hours old. The only thing that they know is that Kubia Jackson had said that Elnora had said she was sitting there talking to Ed. That's all they know. They don't know the time of death. For all they know, she didn't die till the next morning. They knew nothing at that point. Ed was being 100% cooperative, He went to the police station because they said they wanted to talk to him about a robbery. And then if you read through Ed's interview transcripts, you can see that it's about this point where he starts to realize what's happening and gets scared. Everything is very nonchalant. They're asking him questions about what went on, where he was, what his relationship with Elnora was. Hugel had given him multiple opportunities where he could have tried to point the finger at somebody else, and he had no interest in doing that. Huckel asked him about Leonard Mosley. He asked him about anybody else she was dating. And Edward just says, I don't know. I don't know if Leonard was ever there. I didn't know her that well. I wasn't really there. I don't know who visited her. I don't know anything about these people. He voluntarily let Huckel take his shoes off and inspect them. That's when Huckel took the scraping off. He let Huckel inspect his hands and see if there was any bruises or cuts on his hands, which there weren't. He took his shirt off so they could take pictures of him from the front and back. Huckel was looking for any kind of scrapes or scratches or abrasions, which, of course, there weren't. He had to pull up the legs of his shorts so he could take pictures of his legs and look for the same. And again, there was nothing there. So all Deputy Cheney knows is that somebody testified about a phone call that maybe puts Ed in the trailer sometime that night without having any idea when the time of death was. They've got a cooperative suspect. And then he gets on the phone, and the one thing that he was supposed to be doing was to verify whether or not Ed actually went to her house that night and at what time. But before he does any of that, he starts telling this witness all these horrible things. He had told Monica that Ed had sodomized the victim, that he had killed her. So you're already trying to warp your witness. He's already manipulating her. And she still said, no, he was there at 10 o'clock. And then again, when he talked to Detective Huckel, she says 10 o'clock. Now, I don't know exactly who she talked to or how many times, 
but has stated in trial that she was spoken to many times by many different people. And I have a sneaking suspicion that one of those people was most likely the district attorney, David Dobbs. I don't know that for a fact, and she's on my list of people to talk to, but I was trying to figure out who all she could have spoken to. Huckel was the only one working the case after Waller left. Melody McKay wasn't involved anymore once they realized that it wasn't a sexual assault. We know that Waller went with the other officer and David Dobbs to her apartment complex on the 27th, so I'm wondering if they might have stopped by that day and speak to her. But in any case, somehow, some way along the years, that testimony changed from 10 o'clock to 11.20. And something else changed with her testimony from trial number one to trial number two. At trial number one, Monica was shown a photograph that was taken of Ed in the police station the night that he was picked up. That was the Friday night, the 23rd, the first interview. This is the picture that you'll see up on the website. Ed's wearing a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. Now, Ed said that he'd been wearing the same clothes from the night before. At the first trial, Monica testified that when he came to see her on the 22nd, that Thursday night, the night of the murder, that he was wearing the same clothes that he was wearing in that photo, which was taken on the 23rd, consistent with what Ed says. But at the second trial, her testimony changes. Now she says that he was wearing different clothes when he got there on the 22nd, that he was wearing a t-shirt with Shaquille O'Neal on it. And again, I don't know why her testimony changed or why her memory got better five years later, but somehow it did. But regardless of which clothes he was wearing, Monica testified that when Ed showed up at her apartment, that he showed no signs of being in a scuffle, he didn't have any cuts or scratches on him, there was no blood on him or his clothing, she was even asked at trial if he had a foul odor about him. Now you remember that Dale Huckel testified that the reason he scraped his shoes is because he could smell fecal material on them. Now this was 24 hours later. Now according to the state's timeline, Ed murdered Elnora, immediately went outside and got into her car. He didn't change clothes. We know from the crime scene that he didn't clean up there. There was no sign of the killer cleaning up. There was no blood residue in any of the sinks, on any of the towels, nothing. And like I explained last week, this was a bloodbath. Remember, her throat was slit wide open. There was arterial spray that went five or six feet into the kitchen. The killer obviously had blood over him somewhere because you can see the transfer marks on her back. There would have been blood on the killer's legs, shoes. But again, according to the state's timeline, right after the murder, Edward Aids left, got into Elnora's car, supposedly with enough fecal material on his shoe to leave that huge footprint in the middle of the kitchen, which, by the way, forensic testing of the car also showed there was no fecal material in the car drove her car out to Monica's apartment right after the murder, and she says that when he came in there, there was no blood on him, she didn't smell any fecal material, no signs of a struggle whatsoever. She did describe him as being unkempt, but further questioning revealed that what she meant by that was that he was sweating. But now you have to realize, this was July in Texas. I checked the historical weather data, and it was 95 degrees that day in Texas. And at 11 o'clock at night, it was still 85 degrees. And Monica also testified that they had their air conditioner turned off and they had sat in her bedroom for a little while, but it was so hot in there they moved outside. So it's certainly not unreasonable that Ed was sweating. But all in all, when we look at all this evidence together and we try to piece together a narrative where Edward Ates committed this murder, I just don't see how we can come to that conclusion. I believe that there had to have been some kind of mistake or some kind of misunderstanding regarding Kubia's call. It throws a monkey wrench into this whole thing, and it makes nothing else make sense. The day after the murder, both Ed and Monica say Ed was at her house at 10 o'clock. So it just makes no sense that that call could have come in and Ed was sitting there talking to Elnora. Also consider the fact that this is a small, single-wide trailer. 
If Elnora was sitting there talking to Ed, and she had actually said, I'm talking to Edward Lewis, Mrs. Dew's grandson, Ed would have heard her say that. He would have known that someone knew he was there before he committed this murder. And then furthermore, in order for this timeline to work, Ed would have somehow had to commit this murder without getting a single scratch on him, without getting a single drop of blood on him, no bruises, no cuts, no nothing, because Monica didn't notice any of those things on him. And his shoes, where the fecal material was scraped off of, was sent to the lab for forensic testing, and there wasn't a single drop of blood found on his shoes. And if you haven't done so already, take the time to go on the website and read some of these documents. Read Ed's first interview transcripts. You'll see that Hugel tried to set several traps for Ed, and Ed wasn't worried about any of them. Hugel alludes to the fact at several points that they can tell the difference between an old fingerprint and a fresh fingerprint. He asks Ed if he's ever been in the house, and he talks about how there was a time he went in and was helping Elnora get rid of bees, and they were searching for some kind of raid canister or some kind of bug killer. And Hugel asks him, would there be any fresh fingerprints? And he says, no, I haven't been in there in at least a week. He talks to him about the bathroom. He said somebody used the bathroom in there, and the seat was up. And Ed says, I've never used that bathroom. He said, are you sure? And he said, I'm sure. I've never used her bathroom. And Hugel tells him that they're going to be able to find fresh fingerprints on that toilet. And Ed says, I've never used her toilet. And Hugel tells him, if you've been in there and touched some of these things, let me know so we can rule you out. And Ed again says, no, I've never been in those places. You won't find my fingerprints there. He has him describe exactly how him and his brother opened the door when they peeked in the night that the body was found. And he told him exactly where on the door you'll see one set of his fingerprints where he was holding the screen door while Kelvin poked his head in. Ed doesn't fall for any of Hugel's tricks. After he's told him that they're going to test for fingerprints and they're going to test for DNA and that they know he was there because Kubia said he was there, he still says, no, I wasn't there. There's no way that happened. And furthermore, in an attempt to prove his innocence, Edward Ates took not one, but two polygraph tests. Now, these polygraph tests are a big mystery. I didn't know they existed. Of course, they were never introduced to trial because polygraphs are inadmissible. But Ed said that he took two polygraph tests and the detectives told him that he failed them, but they never let him see the results. Later on, Ed's attorneys told him that they had checked the results and that he had passed the first polygraph test and they didn't know about the second. And the state claims that they lost the results of those polygraph tests. So no one's ever actually seen them. But when Ed was telling me about the polygraphs, he told me something else that I found incredibly interesting. Now keep in mind, I don't tell Ed very much. Just like with Kenny Snow, I intentionally withhold information from him. I listen to what he has to say, but I don't ever let on to him exactly what direction I'm going with the investigation because I don't want to take any chance of him giving me misinformation. But while I was talking to Ed Monday about these polygraph tests, he was telling me that there was a bunch of people there. He said that when he was given these polygraphs, Detective Dale Huckel was there, Detective Melody McKay was there, Detective Bobby Gorman was there, and he said that that FBI agent that testified at my trial about Kenny Snow was there too. He breezed right by it and didn't even realize what he had just said or why it was important. Supposedly, Dennis Murphy had absolutely nothing to do with Edward Eight's case. He wasn't investigating it, and he had no interest in it. I believe he said on the show that the only reason he knew anything about Edward Eight's case was because he had read about it in the Tyler Morning Telegraph. So you can imagine my surprise when Ed told me that Dennis Murphy was directly involved in his investigation and was working with the team that gave him both of his polygraph tests. 
and I guess I shouldn't be surprised. The further I dig into Smith County, the more I find that all of these cases are connected. It's the same people, the same methodology, the same witness manipulation. Oh, what a tangled web we weave. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating the music for the show. Don't forget to go onto iTunes and purchase some of the songs or the entire album, Truth and Justice, the music. Remember, that's the soundtrack for the podcast and all the proceeds go directly to Johnny Rose for all of his help and support in developing the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to Daniel Schaefer for editing this episode. Thank you to today's sponsors, Ring Video Doorbell and Sundance Now Doc Club. And thanks to all of you for staying engaged. Remember to go on the website, truthandjusticepod.com, and check out all the case documents. Send those thoughts, theories, and ideas into theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send your new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.